Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. You can check us out literally any platform that you use to get your podcast. You can find us listed as Beyond Politics. If you're already a subscriber, do us a favor, go in and give us a rating and a review. I mean, we'd prefer a five-star rating, but you know, we trust your judgment. It really does help us out. We are delighted to have a fascinating conversation set up for you here today. You know, there's a perception out there, and I think we fall into this habit ourselves, former Congressman Paul Hodes and I, about thinking about Congress, talking about Congress and perceiving Congress as totally gridlocked, as stuck in the throes of parties that do nothing but bicker. And it's kind of distressing to people like us, former Congressman Paul Hodes, who devoted four years of his life to serving in the People's House, and me, I devoted over a decade of my life to being a staffer in Congress. And we care a lot about the institution itself. We believe in Congress. We have reverence for its preeminent role in our democracy. Let's not forget that the role of the Congress is laid out as the very first order of business in our constitution. It's article one. Now our guest today says that maybe we're all being a little too negative. There's actually reason to be a bit more hopeful because Congress gets more done while you're not looking than you'd think. Francis Lee is a professor of politics and public affairs. She's the associate chair of the Department of Politics at Princeton University. And she's the author of numerous books and articles on politics and American government. Dr. Lee, welcome. Uh, great to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And it's a pleasure to have this conversation because I, for one, after the last year that we've all just had, I'm looking forward to a conversation that's maybe a little bit more upbeat and hopeful, although I'm sure that Paul and I, as good Democrats, will work in a little bit of dour, down-in-the-mouth negativism along the way. Let me start off with a quote that you gave to Vox as part of an article about Senator Joe Manchin, in which you said something that really caught my eye and I think launched us onto this whole discussion. In the midst of this article, the author says that the popular narrative of a gridlocked do-nothing Congress has been complicated in your eyes. And what you said is, I would really like to put to rest this idea that the current Congress is gridlocked after 2020. That was an amazing year, a transformative year. So did Congress actually get more done in 2020 than people realize? What was it and why was it so significant? Congress accomplished far more in 2020 um, than is, uh, than is uh, well understood. Uh, most importantly, of course, is the series of COVID aid packages um, that Congress legislated by far the most generous response to um, the pandemic of any advanced democracy. The, the uh, aid packages for the unemployed, the aid to, to businesses, to hospitals, to airlines. Um, I mean, it was comprehensive. There's really nothing we can compare the CARES Act to in terms of this, you know, the scale of the legislation. Um, and then you know, even after enacting um, that, uh, that package, they came back again in December of 2020 with another $900 billion aid package. Just to, put, just to offer a little perspective, $900 billion is more than the Pentagon receives in a year. Uh, and so by the time you add up the five COVID aid packages passed in 2020, you're talking about more than 15% of GDP. It was 
a, a, a very aggressive response. And uh, even though unemployment increased massively across the country, more than 30 million people lost their jobs uh, at the height of the pandemic recession, income did not fall. Poverty did not increase. I mean, this is a muscular response on scale. I, 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 I'm frankly surprised it was even possible to do. Uh, and this happened in the context of uh, intense partisan conflict, a House and a Senate controlled by different parties, a presidential election year, and on the heels of a presidential impeachment. I mean, all the things that you would expect to make it impossible for um, the, the, the Congress to act in a muscular way, and yet it did. Uh, and I don't think that there's enough appreciation for what actually occurred. It, was, it is transformative and it demonstrates uh, the capacity of the national government to respond uh, to, to great need on the part of the American people. And, and, and of course, that's not all, that, that, that doesn't account for all the legislation that occurred in 2020. It was also a significant energy package that was rolled into the December uh, legislation that uh, uh, it can easily make the case is the most important climate legislation that Congress has ever passed, um, including um, a, uh, a significant uh, reduction in hydrofluorocarbons, which are you know, far more uh, consequential for, uh, for the climate. Um, uh, uh, and you know, that a great deal of uh, a great deal of aid on uh, uh, for energy efficiency, uh, for uh, carbon research, um, you know, and no just no coverage of this uh, of this package. Uh, in addition to that, there was a, a finally a deal after um, many years of, uh, of negotiation. Finally, a deal on surprise medical billing in December. Uh, we can add on that there, uh, there was also, uh, you know, in, in June of 2020, a, a, a large package aiding the, um, the national parks, uh, you know, 1.3 million new acres of wilderness designated uh, and done in a bipartisan manner. I mean, there's just a lot that occurred in 2020. And it, it, it's interesting to me how little attention uh, congressional successes receive. Now, part of it is Congress's own fault in that, you know, if you're going to pass all this legislation in one single large package, it's going to wind up being covered as, well, you know, Congress prevents the government from shutting down. You know, that's basically how the December package gets co got covered. Um, but it was far more consequential than that. You know, part, so part of it is the omnibus nature of legislation today so that um, uh, you know, it's just too much. When, when Congress actually does legislate, it's too much to digest all at once. But second, there's a, just a news media bias in favor of conflict, that att partisan attacks get so much more attention than bipartisan legislation, when legislation is, of course, far more consequential for the, for the American people um, than the latest partisan attack. But the partisan attack is exciting. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it garners clicks and it garners news, uh, uh, viewers, uh, and, uh, and so, you know, it, it, it is more useful for the, from the vantage point of uh, the, 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 the profit motive of uh, media organizations rather than, uh, you know, informing people about what's actually happening um, in, uh, uh, in, in national politics and policymaking.
You know, it's interesting. Um, my mind is boggled. Uh, officially, I am now sitting here boggled uh, as an observer, uh, mostly through the media these days of what has been happening in politics since my days in Congress. I have watched, um, observed, heard, and experienced the steady progression uh, of a rising level of animosity, at least as reported in the media uh, and statements by members of Congress themselves. I mean, when I was in Congress, I was always struck, even way back then, in I served from 2007 to 2011, uh, now uh, leader Kevin McCarthy and I and a group of uh, members of the class that we were the class of 2006 would get together for dinners at a bad Chinese restaurant uh, near near the Capitol. And we would have these wonderful, friendly dinners, um, avoiding food poisoning where we could, uh, but having conversations about, you know, our families and our kids and what it was like back home and the weather. And we generally, uh, you know, we, we, we had, we had a a relationship. There was a, there was a cross the aisle relationship. And then, you know, I remember clearly um, uh, I forget the, the name of my colleague from Georgia. We were sitting next to each other and sharing egg rolls and we got back to the floor the next day. And I had a bill, uh, uh, that was a bill designed to prevent the Pentagon from uh, propagandizing citizens at home uh, because there had been a lot of misinformation spread. This was in the wake of the war in Iraq. It, the, the, the Pentagon had basically you know, it, it done a propaganda job. And I had a bill to stop that. Anyway, this lovely, lovely, friendly representatives from representative from Georgia then got on the floor and said the most terrible things about me and the bill and what I was trying to do to America. And, and, and I mean, it was, I sat there just saying, is this the same guy that I broke egg rolls with the night before? And, 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 it's, you know, to a lot of people, it's only gotten worse and worse. So that while you've just told us that while Donald Trump was president, the Congress of the United States passed incredible landmark legislation, as you said, the, the most important energy bill ever passed in December of 2020, while Donald Trump was president, all we've heard about is, is uh, Sturm und Drang, war and destruction, flamethrowers, and crazy talk. I, I, I don't get it. How, how, how is this, as a member of the fake media myself, myself how, how does this work? There is a real disjuncture between what actually happens legislatively and what garners media attention. Um, uh, so I think we just have to begin there with understanding that Congress has a severe public relations problem. That you know, it doesn't get the credit that it uh, that it deserves for the legislation that it does pass and the problems that it does solve. Now, it's not to say that you know Congress is addressing all the needs of the American people. I, I don't want to be interpreted in, uh, as making a, a, you know, that sort of claim, but it does more than is understood, 
And part of that is a result of the media filter that gets in the way. Now, members of Congress themselves participate in that. I mean, just in your example, you know, you could you could uh, have a civil conversation in private, but then um, you know, when members take the floor, um, they you know use this you know harsh demonizing rhetoric, um, uh, you know, accusing the other side of uh, you know undermining the country. And, uh, and of course, then that garners news attention. Um, and so it helps to feed that, that narrative. Now, it's, it's also the case that relations between the parties are very difficult now, and more, even more so here in 2021 than in 2020. I mean, after the, uh, the riots at the Capitol on, uh, on January 6th, I mean, relations are very strained. But the fact about the American political system, you know, the bicameral Congress, the frequency of divided government, it's just very difficult to legislate without bipartisan agreement. And so you rarely see legislation um, get passed on the, uh, on the model of the, say, the Affordable Care Act. I mean, that rarely happens. Uh, it's not the norm of how legislation passes in a polarized Congress. What, the system basically forces the sides to come to the table. They don't enjoy it. It's not pleasant. It often means disappointing your base voters, no matter who's in power. But they manage to do it, particularly when the need is, need is great. Congress has a capacity to respond, especially in times of crisis, uh, that we shouldn't underrate. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and we saw that uh, on an enormous, unprecedented scale. Uh, last year that I don't think uh, has been digested at all. Like it, it amazes me to listen to the, the narratives about congressional gridlock proceed as if nothing happened last, like last year when it, uh, it, it was immense. Well, let me ask, I, I feel a certain amount, first of all, Paul, quick just kudos to you because I think that's a really interesting story you just told. I hear a lot in the popular media, you know, the problem with our country is that members of Congress don't go to dinner anymore. And what I just heard you say is, hey, look, we went to dinner plenty. I don't remember the name of that Chinese place. I, I'm picturing it. They had the fish tank, the big fish tank in the giant, front lobby. I don't, I don't remember tank. what the heck it's called. Right. Anyway, yes, you could definitely die uh, after a meal there. But you went and risked your life there plenty with Republicans. You got along famously. You're a pretty affable guy. That didn't solve all our country's problems. But anyway, Dr. Lee, the, the main question I want to ask you is, I feel a certain amount of cognitive dissonance here. On the one hand, you're telling a story that actually makes a lot of sense to me. I can attest, there's an awful lot that happens when people aren't looking from just, you know, whether it's in the form of individual appropriations bills, which we don't pass anymore. We tend to pass everything in omnibus bills, as you say. So there's an awful lot of fine print hidden in there, but that means there's an awful lot happening in there. A lot of important policy, a lot of important programs are funded. There's a lot getting done. That resonates for me. That makes a lot of sense for me. And from a certain standpoint, as you tick off the accomplishments of 2020, and then Paul, you and I are fresh off a conversation last week on the Balance of Power Roundtable show, where we were saying, gosh, it seems like there's some hope on infrastructure. There's beginning to be a little bit of movement there. There's beginning to be some movement towards Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina's proposal on policing reform. We might get some stuff done this year. So part of my brain says, you know what? There's a good news story here, and maybe we're just not telling it. On the other hand, I can't get over the fact that we are 
five and a half months removed from my former colleagues and friends still working in Congress, hiding under desks and barricading doors to protect themselves from an insurrectionist, I don't want to even want to call it mob, but a violent group that was intent on causing death and destruction under the Capitol Dome. It was, it was a true insurrection. So how do you square those two circles? How, how do you put together, are both things true at the same time? Are we both you know, on the verge of flying apart as a country politically and surprisingly getting things done at the same time? Or is one story more true than the other? Yes, I think those th both things are true. And I think one way to reconcile what's happening uh, in these two arenas is to understand that uh, the, 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 the political parties in US national politics have been locked in a ferociously tight competition for control of national government. Um, since 1980, if we, if we think about the Senate, you know, that's when the, the seemingly permanent democratic majority of the 20th century came to an end, 1980 in the Senate, 1994, after 1994 in the House. Since that time, majorities have been narrow. Almost every election holds out the prospect of change of party control of one institution or another. Uh, and so this incentivizes the parties to drive narratives um, to undercut their opposition, you know, to, to make the case that we should be, if you have the majority, that you should be able to hold on to it, or if you don't have the majority, to make the case for your return to power. So that means to say that everything that the other guys are doing, they're doing it wrong, you know, that we would do things so much better if we had um, the reins. Um, and so there's been a, 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 a you know, staffing up of, um, of uh, uh, you know, communications uh, uh, capabilities in, in the Congress. Uh, many more communicators hired who work on uh, new outreach to try to build these narratives. So, and of course, you know, you know members of Congress experienced um, that it's, uh, you know, personally, that it's much easier to get media attention when you go out and, and launch an attack. Um, so you've got the news incentives to play up conflict. You've got the parties' incentives to wage that battle for institutional control. Uh, and so, what's going on in the um, in the political realm, in the realm of narratives, in the realm of news coverage, emphasizes the conflict, the dysfunction, the bickering. But Congress works on multiple tracks, and legislation does still happen particularly when there is a powerful felt need that's shared across both parties. You know, Congress has a hard time. It's very difficult uh, for a party to deliver on a partisan program. You know, Republicans, despite having unified control, fail to repeal and replace Obamacare. If we go back to the Obama, Obama years, Democrats, despite having unified control and briefly 60 votes in the Senate, failed to pass a major climate bill. Congress has a great deal of difficulty delivering on partisan programs. Even when you give a party unified control, it rarely succeeds. But there's a lot of legislation that's occurring. Um, in fact, the number of pages of enacted legislative text hasn't even declined since the 1980s. It's basically flat. Congress passes fewer bills, but the bills are so much bigger. Uh, and so you know, there's a, it's actually relatively constant how much Congress is getting done if we just look in terms of sheer volume of output. So I think sometimes when we think about gridlock, we're, 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 we're mixing 
Yes, it's hard for parties to do to deliver on a partisan program uh, because it takes bipartisan agreement to legislate in the U.S. system most of the time. You mostly have divided government. Um, you know that's seventy-five percent of the time since nineteen eighty. So you're not going to see legislation um, on, uh, on you know party lines very often. And even then, even when you give parties the opportunity, they have trouble. Uh, you know, holding their ranks together sufficiently. You know, the majorities are usually quite narrow, so you need part, you know, nearly perfect unity to do it. Um, and then there's the Senate filibuster, which gets in the way too. So you add all this up, you can't legislate unless you have bipartisan agreement. So there's the two realms. You have the, the realm of narrative and of um, uh, media coverage that focuses on the partisan conflict. And then you've got the reality of what the institution is actually doing, which is almost always bipartisan um, in, in legislative outputs. If we just look at the law, we just look at the votes that result in the enactment of laws, there hasn't even been polarization in Congress. Laws, there's no increase in the frequency of laws being enacted on party line votes in the polarized Congress. I want to first take us uh, into the Wayback Machine because I'm a good Democrat. And as a good Democrat, the thing I do best is whine and moan and complain and say, oh, woe is me. I mean, that's what Democrats specialize in because, you know, we, we need an enemy. We need we need somebody to, to blame. We need to claim that we're fixing everything. The Democrat, the uh, Republicans are messed up. And that's the only that's that's what Democrats do. We you know when the Republicans are in, they mess it up and we have to come and clean up their mess. And so way back when in the Wayback Machine, it came time for a significant piece of legislation, Obamacare. And it got watered down and watered down and watered down by Democrats because Democrats couldn't agree on what was really going to make it work. And we finally we finally got something and and it passed without a single Republican vote and not a single Republican proposal. We couldn't even get those guys. Uh, and and I, I mean that in the in the uh, non gender specific way, we couldn't get those guys to give us an idea of what they wanted to do, except keep on shoveling money to the insurance company. So we passed it in the House and then it went over to the Senate where it got watered down some more and we lost the ability to have a public option because of Democrats and not a single Republican vote. And and in the next election cycle that uh, where I was the United States uh, senatorial candidate for the Democratic Party in New Hampshire, I got walloped. I got clobbered. I got smashed. I got I got vilified because I had voted for health care. And what I heard over and over again from the citizenry was, was government's going to take over my health care. You just keep your darn hands off my Medicare. That's what I heard in diner after diner. The Republican message machine had done its job vilifying Democrats. Yet, as you point out, they couldn't overturn Obamacare, even when the other guys took control. Now, fast forward, here we are a decade later, and uh, what started out as a Tea Party has now grown by leaps and bounds into a society so polarized that a significant number of people apparently traveled to Washington, D.C., armed with various kinds of armaments, and 
tried to not only take over the Capitol, they stormed the Capitol in a scene. I mean, it was cinematic. It was a cinematic riot, a mob that stormed the Capitol, waving Confederate flags and don't tread on me flags. They erected a guillotine. They wanted to hang people. They wanted to hang. They wanted to hang Republicans and Democrats alike. So you have this bipartisan scene of crazy. And now here we are in 2021, and we've got a, a, a kind of competent, boring government happening. We've got, we've got Mr. Riding with Biden, who is just getting stuff done. And the Republicans seem to be coming apart at the seams. Liz Cheney is now telling tales. Liz Cheney is wants to remake the Republican Party. She gets thrown out of leadership. How, what's, go, what's going on? I mean, it seems like the partisanship has reached such a fever pitch that Mitch McConnell in a redux, a replay of the Obama years has now said that his job is to stand 100% against anything that Joe Biden wants to do, I'm going to be 100% again. Now, what, what's, what is a good Democrat to do but whine and moan about prospects going forward? How do you put the January 6th insurrection with members of Congress voting against certifying the election, with members of Congress making fists um, to to the demonstrators with crazies like Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene in cover. How do we make sense of this in light of your hopeful analysis of progress? I, I as I reflect back on on January sixth, I you know, I see exactly what you're describing the le you know, legacy of um, stoking. Uh, animosity, um, fear, and hatred among the um, base of a political party, telling them that they'd been defrauded of an election. Um, and that, you know, so you can see, you know, that, that you know, what happened to, uh, uh, on January 6th flows directly from all of, uh, all of that rhetoric that they have been fed for years. On the other hand, I think as we look back on January 6th, the most significant moment was Congress's decision to reconvene, to continue the electoral vote count that same night. Everyone understood when the decision was made to do that, what the outcome would be. And yet there was no boycott among even the strong supporters of the president, of President Trump, who had you know, denounced the election as fraudulent. They didn't attempt to delegitimize the count. Instead, they participated. Now, yes, it's true. Then he continued to vote against the certification of particular slates of electors in particular states. But it was still understood when they reconvened what the outcome was going to be. There was not in doubt. And yet decided to participate in it. I, that's where I again see that split screen Congress is sometimes referred to. You know, you have the, 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 the harsh rhetoric, the demonization, the tremendous polarization, and yet still a capacity for the institution to function when it's needed uh, and to function when it really counts, which is that, you know, Congress 
effectively legitimized the, the 2020 election outcome. The, 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 normally the candidates do that. The losing candidate concedes. That did not happen after 2020. So the task was left to Congress, was highly fraught. Um, that's, of course, you, you, you know, why there was, uh, you know, a large protest and a mob assault on the Capitol. Uh, because many Americans had been led to believe that the election was fraudulent. But Congress still managed to come together to, to certify the outcome. And I think that, that that's important and, and, some, and, and underrated. Uh, which Congress is still working through uh, the, the fallout from that terrible day. Uh, and in fact, the you know, Capitol grounds are still fenced off from the public. Uh, but um, but I, 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 I don't think we should underrate the significance of Congress coming together that same day um, to finish the work, the work. Despite that resiliency, you alluded a few minutes ago to a bit of a demarcation in American politics in the way the political parties communicated around 1980 when the dominance of the Democratic Party in the Senate ended, 1994 in the House. Of course, we all tend to think, people of our generation tend to think back to 1994 as sort of the Newt Gingrich-led Republican revolution as sort of the, the dividing line there. One of the things that I observed as a staffer in the wake of that 1994 revolution when I was working on Congress was a real and palpable change in the way that both parties communicated, a realization that there was no advantage to moderating one's own speech. There was actually an advantage to taking one's own speech to an extreme, because if you said something outlandish, it was going to provoke a reaction. And, you know, it's that old thing of like, never, what is it? Never wrestle with a pig, never get down because you both get covered in mud or never get into an argument with an idiot because onlookers won't be able to tell the difference in that charge and counter charge. Your original extreme attack on the other side would get plenty of coverage, plenty of play, muddy the waters and the minds of the American public. And it would be more effective than giving something a little bit more nuanced and mealy-mouthed in the middle. And now, of course, in the era of Donald Trump, we really have seen that entire communication style completely take over. It is the dominant form of political communications in America, the total demonization of the other side. Now, part of that, I think, you're the political scientist, not me, but I think part of that is explainable by the realignment of the parties, that the ideology of each party has really sorted itself into distinct polls on the right and the left. You don't have the same kind of swing vote in the middle that you used to have. So some of that is gonna be awfully hard to change, but is there a way to put some of this toothpaste back into the tube? Is there any way to reel back some of this extremity in communication, the, the political incentive that each party has to maximally demonize the other side? I'm highly skeptical of institutional fixes here. I, you know, the, um, the, the in, in incentives that members and um, you know, staff for that matter have to engage in these partisan attacks are, um, are 
you know, deeply rooted that you know if you want to get if you want as a member of congress to get attention how how do you do it? passing a significant piece of bipartisan legislation participating in that that's not going to work the way you get attention is the attack if you how do you get how do you get um uh, attention for your boss how, how do you go viral um in social media that harsh who are the most famous members of congress now they are the, 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 the hardest line members with uh, the most extreme profiles. Fundraising also uh, encourages this behavior. It, it helps members uh, you know, raise money for the next campaign. Uh, it is very effective. You know, go back to the Obama years and you know, Joe Wilson shouting, you lie at the State, of, the State of the Union address. That helped him raise a lot of money. I mean, members have learned that this, this, is, this, is a, uh, this, this behavior uh, gets rewards, many rewards. Um, so, uh, you know, it's hard for me to see you know, what kinds of little tweaks we might be able to make um, that would get, that could stand up against the incentives of the whole media environment that we inhabit and the uh, campaign finance uh, realities that members face. That um, it, it, it's, the, 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 these, are, these are large uh, you know, problems of political incentive. Um, so but, it, yeah. it leads me, your, your answer leads me to the following question. Given um, the change in the external uh, communications and media environment that we have seen over the past decade. As I sometimes point out, when I got to Congress, there basically was no Google or Facebook or social media. There were no iPads. There were no iPhones. We were on Blackberries. And quickly over uh, the period of time, we saw the rise of the use of social media by Obama in innovative ways. And over the past decade, um, we, as analog beings trapped in a digital world, have uh, tried to evolve to the fast-changing uh, impact of Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Snitch, Twitch, and all the other things that you know. Who, whoever knows what what's what's coming, what's coming next. And as, now, as an as officially a geezer, um, it's hard for me to keep up with how. Uh, younger generations are communicating, but it has completely changed, it seems to me, uh, the media environment. Uh, the, the impact of this pandemic uh, has, if anything, accelerated the trend towards digital communication as the default mode of communication. And that gives every single person, I suppose in an increasingly democratic way, a loud voice in the, in the public opinion forum, uh, sometimes informed, sometimes not, uh, but it seems to have elevated opinion over education. Now with that diatribe uh, on the one hand, um, as our politics have changed, how, do institutions like Congress, uh, voting, campaign laws, and other norms or rules that govern our democracy have to innovate? And if so, how do you see, how, how, what, what innovations do you see as necessary in order to, um, uh, in order to keep things functioning? 
um, and or to or to make functioning better. I see Congress as having innovated and found ways to continue to keep functioning despite um, all um, the, these pressures that push it in dysfunctional directions. That you know, I, I see omnibus legislating as one answer that Congress has developed. That you know, because legislation can rarely be enacted on simple party lines, you know, you know R's versus D's, bipartisan deals are necessary. They tend to disappoint the base. They don't tend to get you the coverage that you want. So the easiest way to do that is to just take your medicine all at once. They do it in these large packages. Um, you can spend a lot of your time attacking the other side. You can continue to you know, excite the voters who um, you know, pay, you know, pay attention to politics. Uh, and uh, you, know, you can fight the good fight in, uh, in the media narratives, but then on the other hand, legislation does get done. Omnibus legislating helps to solve a lot of political problems for Congress. And this all goes through at once. Uh, then you can move on to the to the to the political tasks ahead. Um, the political the, the, the realities of the, the political environment that members uh, inhabit today. Um, so I, I see Congress as having found ways to keep functioning, despite incentives um, that are problematic. I, um, I have my doubts as to whether um, uh, you know, reforms like say you know, nonpartisan districting or open primaries would make that much of a difference. And this comes out of just the work I follow in a political science. That I haven't, uh, I, you know, I, we, we don't have good evidence that these that these um, uh, reforms will have a significant impact. That um, I mean, think about redistricting. Redistricting is high stakes for members of of Congress, but it does not consistently reduce com competition in congressional elections. That we haven't seen that. Um, and in fact, redistricting often promotes competition. And when parties are attempting to, to gerrymander in such a way that they can maximize their seat share, they, they design a lot of somewhat competitive, somewhat competitive constituencies so that they can, they can spread their voters off across more districts in the hopes of winning more seats. Uh, so, uh, and of course, we've seen partisanship rise in the House and the Senate simultaneously even though the Senate is not redistricting. So I don't think a re redistricting reform will have, um, will have that much of an effect. We also don't see that more competitive, members representing more competitive seats don't behave in manners that are markedly different than members who represent safe seats. Um, that, so the, the data are just not there to say that we have, a, you know, we have some clear fixes that will work to depolarize our politics. Um, that uh, uh, same thing you know, if we look at states with open primaries versus closed primaries, they don't result in member, the closed primary states don't have more polarized members. Uh, so we just don't have, I, 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 I come away from this questions about the conventional wisdom about the institutional reforms that might work than uh, you know, an ability to say, uh, here's my program, do X, Y, and Z, and we'll be able to depolarize our politics. That I, I, 
the evidence is just not there to, 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 to support a program of, of, of that nature. Well, let's spin that forward to really the, the ultimate question of where all this is leading to if we're forward looking about it. I mentioned earlier the kind of the sense of cognitive dissonance I had between the good news, bad news story here. As you look forward over the next five to 10 years, you actually wrote a book about this called The Limits of Party about whether we have the capacity to keep governing ourselves as a democracy. You actually edited a volume that put it succinctly in the title, um, Can America Govern Itself? So based on all of your scholarship and all your work, what do you think is the answer to that question? As you look forward, are we going to continue to be able to govern ourselves? What um, my co-author Jim Curry and I found in The Limits of Party was that there had been less change in congressional outputs in terms of what Congress actually does legislatively than we might expect. That, you know, we know that how Congress operates has changed tremendously, so much more partisan than it was in the 1970s and 1980s. We know that the, we know that the parties, um, uh, you know, put forward these starkly different platforms when they campaign. Uh, and that's different than in the past. We know that the leaders wield much more power over uh, uh, legislative negotiations than they used to. But what we don't find is that parties are more effective at delivering on their programs. What we don't find is that more laws are being enacted on party line votes. What we find is continuity. So the US national government is it's hard to move. It's a decentralized system with many veto players but it hasn't ever been thus <laughs> that uh, we don't find major change uh, in terms of what Congress is getting done or what national government does. Um, instead, what we find is, uh, is, is continuity over time. So it's not to be overly sunny and to say that you know, things are working out as they should and that uh, the American people uh, that uh, are getting the government they need, but it's not markedly different despite the changes uh, in partisanship uh, and in the operations of national government. Well, at the top of the show, we promised our listeners that they would get a more hopeful, more upbeat perspective than perhaps they were getting from the media. And that during the course of the show, we would be sure to deliver on the classic democratic downbeat and maybe all hope is lost kind of perspective that the American public is used to. I think we've delivered on both of those promises. Dr. Lee, thank you so much for bringing us your scholarship and perspective on why maybe there's more of a good news story embedded here than we're used to and a little bit more hope looking forward. For my co-host, former Congressman Paul Hodes, I'm Matt Robeson. Thank you for listening on WKXL. And again, if you are listening on Beyond Politics in your podcast feed, please give us a great rating and make sure you've subscribed.